pray to God. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the Organic Farm Stand. We have a very unusual show today. I'm going to um, start by, um, if I can find my uh, paperwork here, uh, reading a statement that I read to staff. Basically, the gist of it is that as many of you know, uh, we have suffered a devastating loss in the past uh, two days. Guy Beardsley uh, passed away from a heart attack on Tuesday morning at St. Vincent's Hospital. And uh, we are, um, <clears throat> you know, just uh, completely at our wits' end and, and feeling all the pain of that. The organic farm stand will um, actually take place today. Uh, this is what Guy would have wanted, and uh, Guy never missed a show, even when he was uh, laid low with a broken hip two years ago for quite a while. Uh, I think he even did a couple from his hospital bed. So he would want us to be doing this today. We're going to carry on, and to do that, we have um, the assistance of some very um, important people in Guy's life. I'd like to welcome um, Suzanne Dusing to the microphone. Suzanne, are you with us? Hello. So, Hi, Richard. Uh, thank you so much for uh, participating in this special programming oh, today. Oh, my pleasure. My yeah. pleasure. We also have with us um, another great friend of Guy's, lifelong friend, Beth Corvino. Beth, are you with us? Uh, Bev, yeah. Bev, Bev I'm sorry, yeah. Bev. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Bev, thanks so much. Um, yeah. Hi, Bev, how are you? Hi, Suzanne, hello. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're so all... glad to be um, joining you at this time, but... Um, it seems appropriate that you would share in in this um, special show dedicated to to Guy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I just want to mention that this is our attempt to sort of keep the ball rolling, as Guy would have wanted us to do for the show. He, I'm sure, he would have said, "Don't you dare." Uh, cancel the show today. So, <laughs> because probably yesterday or two days ago, he was out. You know. Uh, planting or, or, or blackening or doing something with his garlic. Yeah. And, uh, yes. So, uh, his, da his daughter Janelle had told me that he had just split all the cloves um, oh, in anticipation of, of planting. So um, yeah, there you go. He, he would definitely have been in the field. If it's a, gar if it's a bulb day, I don't have my Della Natura in front of me, but <laughs> he was very dedicated to planting by the moon and right. um, had great success doing it. Yes, indeed. He, he, I mean, his produce uh, was par, you know, par none. There was, there was nothing else. I, I could, I could make a main course out of one of his heads of lettuce. I, I literally yeah. could. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, in any case, um, yeah. So we're uh, we're going to carry on, and we're going to do a regular show. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, Suzanne and Bev could be with us because. Uh, it's there's some interesting stories involved with um, the way this show got started, which we'll we'll go into in a minute. Uh, it had to do something uh, with a a film that Bev did uh, back in was it 2009, Bev? Uh, 2006. 2006. Mm -hmm. Called the Farmer's Voice, and uh, you, where you went around. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that film, and then uh, we can t we can sort of have segued into how 
that uh, led us to Guy Beardsley? Uh, let's see. That's quite a quite a time has yeah. passed. <laughs> Search your memory. <laughs> my, yeah, get my memory going. No, um, there was a lot of farm issues going on at that time in Connecticut, especially, and uh, a lot of threats to farmland. And uh, I saw just down the street from me, uh, where I used to run over and get my veggies every year, fresh veggies, fresh corn. And the farmer um, died, and they just got rid of the land, and they turned it into an, a development. <laughs> and so I saw that happening, and then I drove all around the incredibly beautiful rural areas of Shelton uh, to check and see how the farmers, rest of the farmers are doing. And um, I would go to guys uh, for, you know, vegetables and um, talk to him about what was going on and uh, talk to other farmers as well, Rudy Hudak and uh, and Stone Gardens uh, people and who are just starting up their stuff and um, and the Deucings, oh my gosh, you know, they were, <laughs> Bill Deucing was a big, big deal at that time, uh, trying to work as hard as he could to uh, protect farmers and keep the farmland safe in Connecticut. And so I just thought, gee, what what else could I do? And for some reason, I don't know, out of the blue, I talked to my son, Sean, who was doing more filmmaking than I ever did. And um, I asked him if he'd like to help to do a film about saving the farms. And so I, I did do that. And uh, uh, just not just overnight. It took like three years to put it all together. <clears throat> and um, I don't know why. My phone is beeping. Can you still hear me? Hello? Yeah, we're, we're, not, hearing Hello? That. we're not hearing that. We're not hearing the beep, so... Oh, okay. So, um, so I started to to put together the farmer's voice, and um, I hadn't haven't really shown it in places. Well, I, I did originally, you know, originally uh, when it was done. Uh, I had Guy and his wife on there, and um, uh, Guy walking through his gardens and talking about you know the plants and the seeds and how important, uh, I mean, it's just an amazing amount of important um, information that, that these farmers would send out. You know, the Joneses, Phil Jones, uh, sent out this super-duper message on um, if you're good to the land, the land will be good to you. And um, I put that into the film and... Uh, a, a bunch of other stuff, and I hadn't watched it for quite a while. And, and then when I heard that guy had passed away, I, I was like falling apart. I drove over there, drove around to see—I don't know—just to get those memories back in my heart. And um, and I did, and and so I watched the film this morning, The Farmer's Voice, uh -huh. wow. and I was like blown away. <laughs> 
by the messages that came that I captured. Um, from and the, still relevant today, I'm sure. From Probably the farmers, more yeah. So. Probably more so, mm-hmm. indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that backstory because I didn't know that much about it, really. The way I came in contact with that film was, I can't remember the program I was doing, but it had something to do with organic farming because I've always been interested in it. Um, And uh, it was a fundraiser here at PKN. And I think John, your husband, said, well, you know, we have this film and maybe you should offer it as a premium since you're talking about organic farming. Mm. So, so there were copies of, of, of Farmer's Voice that we were offering on the air. And uh, I think we might have played a, you know, some audio from it and mm-hmm. gave away a few copies. And uh, at that point, I uh, cannot remember exactly how Guy um, entered the picture. But I think the next show, we thought, well, why not have Guy come on Mm. and talk about the film, but also about his participation in uh, the whole movement for preserving farmland, small farmland, and keeping the organic community alive. Mm -hmm. So so Guy came on as a guest, and uh, there was just an uproar uh, of people saying, we got to have this guy on on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. At that time, Denise Manzari was the program director, and she heard the show, and she said, you got to do this show. At that time, we I only had the show once a month at that point. She said, you got to do the show more often, and you got to have Guy come back. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how it all started, you know, and that, that was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 2009. So that's, uh-huh. that's 11 years, well, 12, 12, 11 years ago. So Wow. That that uh, guy has been on has been on the, the you know the principal farmer on the show and uh, lead producer and just uh, the voice the warmth the humor mm-hmm. uh, the, the men- knowledge the incredible knowledge. knowledge oh my gosh yeah yeah I mean you know the history you know because he's he was on the planet so long he had an understanding of where we came from, what came before, long before, you know, um, uh, any of us were even born. I mean, you know, he, he was born, um, nearly 20 years before me, you know, and I'm no, I'm in, I'm in my mid seventies. So right, know, he, right. He, he was around a long time, a long time. Well, I remember we asked him to talk about how his, uh, the organic farming, ethos took over uh the eco garden and you know when his father was still alive and 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 there was a period when after world war ii when ddt was sort of the uh default pesticide to sort of make your fields pristine and bug free mm-hmm. and um his father uh said, oh, yeah, DDT, Mm, what about that? I guess maybe I should give it a shot. And he did it, I think he did it one season. He he tried it, and he said, he looked at the results, and he said, this is not for me. I'm not going to do this. And that was was a turning point right there where uh, I'm pretty sure at that point uh, the eco, Eco Garden eschewed all those kinds of uh, commercial uh, 
toxins and started to moving move toward a natural uh, chemical free farming uh, mode mm -hmm. and so that was a fascinating story to, to see how the actual it wasn't like a theoretical decision it was a practical decision <clears throat> he put it on his crops and he saw how it killed everything in the row except mm -hmm. for the one plant he was trying to preserve and he said this this cannot be good you know mm -hmm. right and i think that 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 um revelation led to the establishment of the certification committee on uh, the in on nofa the northeast organic farming association mm. which he was instrumental in um driving and and creating and um, being a part of mm -hmm. and actually funny story is he enlisted me of all people who had no background in science <laughs> no real understanding of soil science i mean i was married to happened to be married to a person whose whole life was organic farming and so i kind of learned by osmosis but i certainly i mean i grew up in new york city you know so i really was not we can hear good... we, we can hear that uh we can hear that in your voice uh can you really? Absolutely. It's still there. I, I tried so hard to erase it. <laughs> but I guess, you know, you could take the girl out of New York, but you can't take New York out of the girl. Thank anyway, um, or the woman, I guess I should say at this point. Anyway, um, uh, he did get me involved, and I did um, learn very quickly and made terrible, terrible mistakes and got, got a lot of farmers really, really mad at me. And because of the kinds of uh, mistakes I made, but um, you know, in any when you're forming any, I worked hard, you know, and I I guess I was the secretary for a number of years, so that was a useful contribution. But um, uh, he and his wife Pat was um, much more knowledgeable than than I, and she was very very uh, helpful and supportive and. Um, uh, I served a number of years on that before I was actually on the board, which was a better place for me to be on the board because that was, didn't require the specific kind of knowledge of soil science and um, plant plant bi botany that I really was lacking in. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last 35 years, but um, still feel you know daunted by uh, the kinds of things that people like Brian O'Hara are able to talk about and mm. and uh but it's a it's a fascinating fascinating journey and you know my experience with guy uh, we planted and harvested garlic together uh, uh for two years and after bill died it was kind of comforting to be able to spend time on with guy on his farm doing what bill and i had done for so many years Mm. And, um, you know, it was here we were, these two old folks out in the field in the whirling hot sun. Mm. We go, go out for three hours or four hours at a time. And our kids would say to us, well, not Janelle, because she was she was um, more involved. They said, you, how can you do that? How can you be out there for so long? And I guess it's it's just, you know, it's something you do. And we enjoyed it. And we talked the whole time and um i always learned things from him and he had a different technique for planting than than bill and i had which i found kind of amusing and um 
and it was it was really rewarding. You know, it was one of those enriching experiences for which I'll always be grateful. And then Janelle and I have also had an ongoing relationship where we would exchange uh, flowers that when she'd have a function and be short of flowers, I would fill in for her. And I was doing the flower show, um, providing for certain functions, and I'd be short flowers. She would fill in for me. So it was a very reciprocal relationship. And of course, when I lived in Oxford, I only lived um, at the crow flies a couple of miles from them. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, yeah. the river was between us, so it was a circuitous route to get there, but uh, it only took about 15 minutes. So it was it was very near and very near and dear, in, you know, in, in geographical distance, but also very near and dear in my heart. We're speaking with Suzanne Dusing and Bev Corvino, who are joining us today to begin the celebration of Guy Beardsley's amazing career. I'm getting all choked up here. Um, But um, we're going, I just want to mention that uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to put together a a full-blown tribute to Guy, where we will have many of his associates uh, who... He mentored and inspired over decades and, uh, of course, worked with he, – he, he had many, many young people, uh, high school kids, college kids, uh, graduate students coming through his farm because they, <laughs> they understood what a resource it was and how much knowledge was encapsulated in that barn, in that barn of his, where he had—I remember one time he—he he took me on a tour of the, the farm on a very hot day, and we were both like wondering whether we were, you know, we had made a mistake because it was just so blistering hot. But he—he—he he, he kept going. We went around the entire farm. He took me in the barn, and he said, "These are my soil amendments," and there was like, there must have been—I don't know—thirty-five sacks of mm-hmm. minerals and different kinds of combinations of ingredients th- put together th- through his uh, experimentation, his study, and uh, his trial and error. And he knew what every one of them did, and he used most of them in his planting. And I said, oh, my God, this is, this is no joke. I mean, farming is it's not uh, like a, a sort of... Ha- you know, Johnny Appleseed scatter the seeds and come back. Yeah, it's not haphazard. It's it's very deliberate. 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 It's a science, but it's also, uh, there's a kind of a a quality of um, just uh, absolute um, scrupulous uh, attention to that kind of detail where you trust that when you put, you know, this particular mineral in the soil, it's going to do something beneficial to that plant that is right. u- unique to that plant. And you're going to wind... You, you, go ahead, right. Suzanne. I'm sorry. He was a, a very strong proponent of the soil test. You know, every, almost uh, yeah. every show we would talk about the soil test. That's you know, right. How you need, yeah. In order to know what, you, what the amounts of those amendments and uh, what was needed 
you know, you, it, it, operating blindly was just foolishness, you know, to just kind of go out there and dig a hole and start putting seeds in the ground. It was really, it was self-defeating and unproductive, you know, because, you know, people would say, I don't know why this didn't grow. And then you find out, take a soil test, and they had absolutely no phosphorus in their soil, and no potassium, or no calcium. You know, the electrolytes were very, very non-existent. Or, you know, they didn't have organic matter. All of the things that, you know, you learn when you build soil um, that are significant. So, you know, when I started, when I moved to this new place, I'm living in in, in kind of a, it's, it's kind of in between suburbia and urban area, you know, but everybody has a lawn and my lawn was dead because it was in a, a chemical lawn that during the process of buying and selling just died because it didn't get its fix, <laughs> you know, its infusion of poisons. and. So, you know, I had this dead area, and Mike Nadeau and Nancy Jabril, the first thing we did was we took a soil test. Of course, it, as, as predicted, there wasn't anything happening. So, you know, we are building the organic matter. And as, as I was doing that, I was thinking about what I had learned from Bill and what I had learned from Guy about creating organic matter, you know, in the soil. And now it, you, with those beds are laid out, they're... We used to lay down cardboard and wood chips over the beds, and Mike Nadeau helped plant a lawn, and you know that are just walkthroughs because I didn't want a lot of lawn. And and now if people stop by and say, "What kind of grass seed was that? Hmm. You know, what? What? How did it grow so fast? I mean, why does it look so beautiful? Right. <laughs> and you know, without chemicals. And so, you know, you sort of become an advocate for this by doing and showing, not by talking about it or trying to convince anybody you know just people drive by and they stop you know there's not a lot of traffic because it's kind of a cul-de-sac but the people in the neighborhood have sure that's how i've met my neighbors you know them wanting to know what i'm doing out here so uh and i think of guy all the time when i'm doing anything out there make sure you understand what you're dealing with and before you start doing stuff well that's Thank you, Guy. <laughs> Indeed. I, I think that uh, that's such a fabulous story about how, and, and this is something, a lesson that uh, Bill taught me, too, Bill Dusing. He said, um, I said, well, I, you know, I, I planted, uh, I, was, I was searching high and low for organic blueberry bushes uh, pretty much any, everywhere. I, I guess I, I, I don't know if I went to the mail order places where they might have some. But uh, that's always dicey because you know you get them in the mail and you you know you're not sure if you're going to revive them and get them to uh, to grow properly. But so I was looking at all the nurseries around here. No, we don't have organic blueberry bushes. And so Bill said, "Well, plant your bushes, and next year they'll be organic." <laughs> you know, so it takes about a year. You know, it takes about a year. But uh, that notion of the way you say said you restored your lawn, you took it from. The uh, the graveyard that it was the chemical mm -hmm. the chemical uh, leaching field that uh, the commercial um, lawn industry uh, foists upon us you took it from yeah. there and you turned it into a lush organic uh, meadow and uh, yeah. th so that to me is the essence I think of the 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 wonder of and, and the hope f for our uh, our whole system of agriculture and 
and uh, restorative agriculture and sustainable agriculture, the notion that it's not, it's, all is not lost when the, right. da- the damage has been done. You have to right. methodically build it back, and you can do, do that. And the next thing you know, you'll have vital soil, which is producing healthy food and restoring itself and sequestering carbon and doing the things that we need it to do. So yeah. it, that, that's so important, I think, to, to remember that there's hope. Uh, even uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean, even, that was one of the things, you know, when I was teaching in Bridgeport, people were saying, oh, my God, how can you how can you deal with it? You know, the poverty and the deprivation. And the I said, well, you know, when you when you I, we did gardening with the kids and grew food and uh, the nutrition and exercise and this healthy lifestyle that, you know, urban kids often weren't exposed to at all. And it, it was so exciting to do that work with children. And Guy always, you know, his, his daughter Janelle is a teacher as well, and and we always had lots to talk about. But um, Guy and I always, he was always so enthralled by the work that Bill and I did in Bridgeport in a public school, you know, digging up and planting food and, and, um, you know, teaching teaching kids, you know, the cycle of nature, you know, that, um, you know, and it was really fun that he shared that enthusiasm with us for that. Yes, indeed. Um, I am in the process now of actually seeing if I can get uh, Vincent Kay to join us because he did. Oh, great. Yeah, he, he said, I said, Vincent, you know, you, you know what happened? And he said, yes, I do. I said, would you feel comfortable doing uh, your spot and 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 keeping the th- keeping the ball moving here because that's probably what guy would have wanted. So let's see if Absolutely. I Absolutely. Get... I mean, that's exa- he would never. You know, good show is one of his, <laughs> his favorite. Hey, Vincent. You know, um, is Vincent okay, there? I got you on the line. I'm going to put you. Um, I'm going to put you. Uh, oh shit! One second. Pardon me. <laughs> I just dropped. I just dropped Bev, and I dropped Vincent. So I'm gonna have to. Uh oh. Uh, uh, Are you there, Richard? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get Vincent back. Then I'll get Bev back. Okay, I'm here again. Vince, Hi, you there? Vincent. Vincent, are you there? Oh, are we on on air? Uh, yes, you are. You are now on air. You are now on air. Are you with us? I am. Great. Okay. Let me just. This is this is one Hi, of these. Hi, Vincent. Hello, hello, Susan, Suzanne, and um, Beverly. Right? Yeah. Bev, yeah. Bev, yeah. Bev, I can just about hear you, started, Richard. So I, you're going to have to. Hmm. I don't know if we can be tuned up a little bit. Yeah, uh, there I, I was speaking. I was speaking okay. into the phone instead of the microphone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to, uh, as you speak, Vince. I'm going to see if I can get Bev back on the line. So, um, okay. all right, um, v- Vincent, you are aware of what's what uh, are very tragic. Oh, it, was, it was such sad news to hear, and um, I was uh, my my helper John and I were driving just last week, and we were. I said to, to John, I said, look at this this um, this gentleman in this, this old truck driving down Whitney Avenue heading north. And I said, I bet it's Guy Beardsley. And sure enough, it was. And so I pulled up alongside <laughs> him. 
and we both waved at each other. And because um, I had only just met um, Guy recently, and um, but I, I felt like I've known him for a very long time. And he was always he was always a kind of um, gentleman about differences of opinion, and and um, but a steady presence, I think, in the world, which. Um, went beyond his garden, which was um, a good place to start for anyone. But you knew that he knew what he was talking about because of the, the vast detail that he would go into about picking potato beetles off of plants or this or that. And you knew that he would actually do that, and he was out there. And that's what made him so genuine, and I think that's what will make him so missed because he was he was a gem. He really was. And... Um, uh, we can only try to, to, you know, emulate him and, and, and do exactly, you know, some of the things that he he, he taught us. And, and uh, you know, you do get choked up about it, thinking about it, because he was, he was a great presence and, um, you know, a great mentor, I'm sure, to many, many people. So he'll be missed. Oh, indeed. He'll be missed. Yeah. What, what I always wonder about, and by the, way, we have, by the way, we have Bev back with us. Thanks for hanging in there, Bev, while I uh, went through my... Little uh, te- technical, uh, <laughs> my acrobatic. Well, you're managing a lot of balls in the air today, Richard. <laughs> yes, so indeed. You're doing great. It's it's pretty it's pretty uh, daunting, but um, <clears throat> yeah. What was um, that? Uh, now I'm going to figure out what I was going to say. But um, uh, yeah, he he um, he he uh, had a way of um, you know imparting information. In, I mean, he, the thing about Guy was he was not a pushover. He was not a, uh, you know, you couldn't you couldn't get around his commitment and his the, the science-based approach to agriculture. When he talked about a topic, he had uh, a knowledge base, and I think that I guess what I was going to say was that I worry. And I, I worried so much when uh, Bill died. <clears throat> you know, these are uh, repositories of incredibly depth, incredible depth of knowledge, and a breadth of knowledge that you wonder, you wonder how much will be lost when they pass on. And so, you know, it's I think it's <clears throat> incumbent on guys acolytes as as bills to be vigilant and always looking out for what he was up to trying to pursue the pathways that he was on and try to cull that knowledge and somehow codify it and and make sure that uh the secrets that guy had because as i said those soil amendments were you know his own in many cases his own concoctions done through trial and error, and it wasn't just something he went to the you know to the textbook and, and read it and 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 did it. He experimented with it, and it was through trial and error that he figured out which ones would work the best. That's the kind of knowledge that I'm talking about. That's the kind of stuff that can slip away if we're not careful, and um, so. Well, just to put an optimistic slant on it, I think there are some fabulous um, farmers around doing just that kind of <clears throat> knowledge building that Guy was so adept at. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think of um, Steve Munro at at, at, Munro at um, Masaro Farm and David Glynn at his place and numerous others, you know, who, Brian O'Hara, uh, who are, you know, carrying the torch, you know, just keeping keeping this alive and, and teaching, you know, letting people come to their farms and understand what they're doing and be a part of it, you know, in a yeah. very important way, not just setting up a farm stand and selling the stuff, you know. You know, so, um, absolutely, Suzanne. You know, we're going to, uh, later in the program after Vincent uh, gives us his update, we're going to be speaking with Dave Chapman from... Uh, uh, his farm is called Longwind Farm in Thetford, Vermont. He is also the co-director of the Real Organic Project. And uh, that's a whole uh, other aspect of this uh, organic movement that is beginning to develop in a very grassroots way. But uh, we're going to hear how Dave and his small band of organic... Uh, I don't want to say warriors, but organic, uh, you know, fighters up, up there in, uh, in in rural America, all over the country, by the way, not just not just the Northeast. Yeah, because basically what they're doing is countering the USDA's uh, move towards commercial organic, you know. It's, exactly. Um, for example, certifying hydroponics as organic, yeah. which is just, um, you know, outrageous since, Organic agriculture is based on soil health, and without the soil, you can't call it organic agriculture. So, you know, there are all those kinds of, um, and we knew as, you know, organic agriculture became a huge part of the, you know, of the financial world as, you know, more money was made. I guess that's one of the most lucrative um, segments of the, of the economy is organic agriculture and you can see with the growth of whole foods and and farm markets and farm stands and csas and all those wonderful things that have happened that you know the the financiers would definitely want it their chunk you know they would want oh, their yeah. piece of it and so you know there's been a lot of compromise and you know i go way back to you know the usda standards in a meeting in vermont where this poor fellow in a suit was standing up, you know, on this podium hmm. with like 40 farmers in the audience, just basically giving him a very hard time, but raising all the questions that are now the problem, you know, that, you know, we were so aware and so prescient about uh, able to foretell exactly what direction this was going to go, which it has. But, you know, Dave's work and the work of those farmers is just essential for retaining the integrity of organic agriculture, which is very much threatened. Absolutely. And we're going to we're going to hear about the movement and the shape it's taken uh, and how it uh, hopefully will begin to become not just uh, sort of a spotty development with 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 a few farmers here and there but an actual national movement to change yeah. to change yeah. to create a new label it'll be called the real organic i think the real organic label it'll be called uh yeah, I, th- I think it's great it, it'll, it'll uh, if i'm not mistaken it'll it'll be uh there'll be something on your food packaging which would would say uh soil grown 
or it's grown in soil as opposed to right. grown right. Uh, hydroponically. Exactly. So you'll be able to distinguish as a, as a consumer which is which. So when you go and you buy those grapes in those plastic bags that, are, that say organic, and uh, you, you know it doesn't it doesn't tell you that the fact that they were actually never 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 came in contact with soil, um, you'll you'll be able to make that distinction as a consumer. Um, so anyway, so Dave will be joining us. So but but let's let's check in with um, with uh, Vincent to to find out uh, what's going on. Vincent, I know you. The last All right. Uh, um, excuse me, Richard and Suzanne and and uh, it's Beverly wanting to say goodbye. Okay. <laughs> Thanks Be- for having oh, me on. Bye, Beth. And um, Thank if you there's so any much. anywhere to show the film, The Farmer's Voice, it's really a special tribute to uh, farmers and not all. You know, I wish I. Had reached out to a lot more than I did. Well, Bev, I, I have an the, I have an idea. That I reached out to I I think are worth watching. So I I I totally agree, and, and it's 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 always tragic when people work on these amazing projects and then they sort of wind up you know in your uh, on your shelf and, <laughs> well, and, and sometimes was, it means more as it the years go on and yeah has more meaning. So, well, here's um, a thought for you. There's um, we've been intermittently doing these uh, actually uh, with uh, Kevin Gallagher he's been running these uh, environmental films right. film series yeah, we did mention it to him a while back but well I will mention it to him again I think this yeah, is the, the perfect perfect on, on the list <laughs> perfect timing for that and yeah, especially it's an hour long and it's uh, you know it's uh, it's, it's pretty good <laughs> Uh, I can't. Yeah, I, I can't wait for that to happen. Yeah, I think that I think that's uh, that's something we can count on. That, uh, that all right, and we'll have guy in on the you know in the film and uh, and uh, Bill Bill Dusing and we've lost those guys and another farmer that was lost um, and unfortunately his property has fallen apart here in Shelton. But um, anyway, yeah. So I'm going to say. Um, I I'm just torn apart by uh, by guys leaving us so suddenly and um, so you know it's the icon of of our area and certainly in in many areas throughout the world. So all right, you guys, thank you for having me on. Bev, thank you so very much for joining You're very us. Very welcome today. and good and luck, best everyone. And best Stay to well. John, Bev. Do give I will. <laughs> Okay. All right. We'll bye see bye. you soon. Talk I to hope. you soon. Bye. Thanks for being with us. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. And uh, so, Vincent, um, with with our limited time here, because I do want to okay, get da- <laughs> Dave on. Yeah. So just give us a sense of what's going on. I know you mentioned in an uh, in a text to me that you had planted uh, tens of thousands of bulbs of garlic. Well, we are we are in the process of planting garlic right now. We're taking a little break from the bees. Um, but the bees, and and I would like to just say that you know the loss of Guy is 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 a, a deep felt sorrow, but he was a diplomat and and in many ways for organic gardening and farming and uh, had that as the high standard to achieve. But what was interesting, I think, with Guy, is that he also accepted into the ranks other members of the agricultural community in Connecticut. He may not have emphasized that, but he didn't exclude them. And I think that 
you know, along the way of trying to achieve organics, which may or may not be possible for some people to do um, based on where they are and what they want to achieve in their garden or farms and the pressures of financial um, uh, accounts. I mean, some people are trying to make a living at farming, not just having a backyard garden. So there are certain pressures. But I think he embraced everyone, and that was the the key, I think. Um, and I just always was endeared to hear him describe his chisel plow when he was planting garlic. And um, my helper and I are sitting here laughing right now. And it's just, but he did it with such gusto. And it was just such a wonderful um, description. He was almost poetic about it. And it, it almost, you know, brings us to tears because right now we're planting our garlic by hand, <laughs> all 35,000 heads of garlic. And I said, I wish I had guys chisel plow in the worst way. And uh, it just, uh, yeah, he, he was he was a gem. And um, but we are planting garlic now. We've got we've got a crew that um, we're taking a break today, and we're popping cloves, as they call it. Um, we're separating the cloves from the heads of garlic to make sure that they're um, true and that they're not um, moldy or infected or soft or in any way decomposing. So we're making sure we have good true garlic seed. Um, and we've got a, a number of varieties this year that we're, we've we've invested in some garlic. So we're expanding a little bit into um, things like chestnut red and Romanian red and uh, German white. Hmm. We've been planting pretty much solely the um, white porcelain, uh, which is like the German white, but not quite. So anyhow, we, we, we've expanded into different varieties, and we're doing that. And we should finish sometime next week. Uh, we've got a good dry period here, which is it's 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 terrible to try to plant in the mud. So we've been waiting for oh, one field yeah. to dry out. And so we we hit the other field yesterday. Um, and we, we planted a lot of garlic yesterday. And we'll probably did you really say? Tomorrow. Did you really say thirty-five thousand, Vincent? Yes, we do. We ha- we have it mapped out. We have a, um, it's like a grid, and so we have three fields, and we have um, it's like three large raised beds. And for the last, I would say, five years, we've worked very hard at taking all of the rocks out of the soil. So it's it's really beautiful yes, soil now, and nice. you almost want to lay down and go to sleep in it when you look at it. Yeah, it's just eat it. luscious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, but that that's an ongoing process because the frost mm-hmm. and freezes here in Connecticut keep bringing rocks to the surface, but usually not the right. big ones. We've 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 gotten rid of a lot of rocks, and and the piles that we can point to um, <laughs> are a testament to that. But um, we do use some organic fertilizer in the fall before we plant. Mm-hmm. We we do that about two weeks prior to planting, and then we till it in with rototillers. And um, it's a mild um, fertilizer, but it's a, something like a, a five four three, um, mm-hmm. and it's breakdown. Yep. Um, you want more nitrogen in the spring when it's actually growing upwards with the greenery. Yep. Um, but right now, you don't want it to come up. So. Um, this afternoon, in fact, the race will be um, we're, we have to go get our loads of straw because we do uh, mulch it with straw for the winter. Mm-hmm. And um, we try to get that straw on before um, it starts to sprout up. And so we're not yeah. guaranteed of cold weather, even though the last couple of nights have been chilly. But um, we want to get that straw on for a number of reasons. First of all, um, moisture retention. Second of all, weed prevention. And also, um, the color of the straw is light. 
So it reflects the heat and, and prevents the garlic from coming up too soon in the spring where mm-hmm. they get damaged by the frost and the ice. So that's where yeah, we're at this afternoon. It keeps, the, it keeps the soil from heaving. That's you know, um, very yes. important. Yes, it distributes yeah. the water um, so you don't yeah. get puddles and pooling, stuff like that. Yeah. That's correct. Exactly. So that's even a fourth reason to have that, correct. But um, mm-hmm. So we're doing that, and then we'll be planting all day tomorrow. The crew will get five guys going. And... Um, Wow. So that's that's the uh, the deal right now. And we've been doing this for, you know, probably the better part of 20 years along with the bees. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as the bees go right now, things are good. Um, uh, just a note to other beekeepers out there who might be listening, make sure that you put in your mouse guards to keep the mice from going into the hives and wreaking havoc over the winter. And that can simply be a smaller piece of wood over the entrance or a piece of metal, hardware cloth, that the bees can get out but the mice can't get in on. So you just stuff it in the entrance and bingo, it works. The other thing is make sure, and it's a little late to be doing this, but make sure um, they have enough to, to eat over the course of the winter. They don't hibernate. And most people think that bees just go to sleep. They don't. They stay in the hives and they consume um, honey, but if they run out of honey, sugar syrup will do. It will get them through. And so you can check the hive by tipping it and feeling the weight. And it takes, it's taken as many years to figure this out, the correct weight uh, for a hive to get through a normal Connecticut winter. And so it should be between 60 and 80 pounds. And so you really need to kind of understand what that feels like when you're tipping it. And then, you know, you can try to feed sugar syrup now, but the nights are getting cooler, and it takes the bees a little more energy to actually um, take that syrup and render it into a form of storable food. In other words, they have to reduce it and fan their wings over it and reduce the moisture. Otherwise, you're mm-hmm. going to kill the hive by feeding it when it gets too cold. So stop feeding it when you end up with um, daytime temperatures in the 40s because it's just it's 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 not beneficial to the hive. So there's little things like that. Um, We also have been using pieces of black tar paper to put on the top of the hive so that the color creates some um, direct solar uh, heat uh, Mm -hmm. against the metal lid. So that helps the bees um, stay active enough where they can move laterally from one side of the hive to another so that they can get to um, frames of food that are stored in honeycombs uh, sometimes a hive will die because it's it's eaten its way over into one side of the hive, uh, consuming honey. But then when they run out, if it's if it's zero or below 20 degrees, they can't move inside the hive because it's so cold. They just they won't break cluster as it's called, and they end up starving to death. So you you oh. can help a little bit by giving them that black mat on the top um, or a piece of tar paper or even painting the lids temporarily black for just the winter months. Of course, you want to paint them white or remove the tar paper in the summer because then it gets too hot. Um, Anyhow, little tricks like that will help. Um, Make sure that if you're in a remote area, we have many bees in remote areas right now. We have upwards of over 400 hives. And we are in a lot of remote areas where there are black bears. And so black bears um, are increasingly a problem with beekeepers and other livestock um, people in Connecticut, people with goats, chickens, pigs, um, all of that. Um, Bears um, think it's theirs, (laughs) including the beehives. So it's um, important to have some form of solar um, or uh, an electric fence, whether it be solar or direct current or AC current from a building 
but something to protect those those hives. And um, mm-hmm. so we're constantly monitoring um, our solar panels to make sure they're putting out the usual uh, requirement, which is um, we like to see them hit 10,000 volts um, in the wires that surround the hives. So that gives the bear a good jolt, teaches them actually um, uh, to stay away from the hives. And we've actually seen footprints in the snow circling the electric fence. And you know that bear's gotten jolted a few times as he's mm-hmm. trying to test the fence. And they learn, just like a dog will learn with the invisible fence with the white flagging. The bears learn the mm-hmm. same way with this fence. Mm-hmm. And they're very smart creatures. And it doesn't hurt the bear, but it teaches them. And they're my hives, not yours. <laughs> and so that's the way we like to keep it. Another fascinating story there from, about the how to protect the hives from the various uh, vagaries of uh, of this uh natural environment uh, of mice Vin- and bears yes yeah. vincent i'd like to uh now uh, bring in dave chapman who, who probably has been listening a bit and may have some words about the bees but also has a very important message about his uh real organic project dave thank Beautiful. you dave chapman from uh, thetford farm in vermont thank you so much for being with us are you there oh, dave is well we seem to have dropped dave off the line Sorry about that. We're having a, we're having a, uh, all right, I'm going to try one more time. So um, if you gentlemen uh, and ladies will continue, I will uh, see if I can get Dave back on the line. I'm going to, I'm going to get off mic and let you guys talk for a second. Uh, no, Dan oh, worked uh, with me for a little he, while. Yeah. Uh, he did. Yes. And when I, I, I saw him this morning when I was picking up his son to take him to school, um, he said, please tell Vincent hello for me. And, you know, Dan is um, farming as well in the, in the tradition of his dad. Uh, it's a little more mechanized than, than yep. uh, Bill and I ever um, did. But um, he's, he's creating quite a nice situation at the 4-5 uh, farm in, in Bloomfield. Whoa. We're getting all sorts of feedback from Richard, I think, trying to contact uh, the next guest. So, well, one of the things you mentioned when you were talking was um, normal Connecticut winter. And, you know, the new normal is that nothing is normal. So I'm sure you're going to be facing some challenges with... um, We have, actually, with um, climate change, um, not just the windstorms, which have been relentless, um, and it's such a drag on our labor. Um, to check the uh, solar fencing. We've got probably yes. about 20, 20 different bee yards now, and I would say probably 15 of those 20 have um, solar electric fencing, so it's quite expensive. And when yes. trees come down on the fence and the units and the panels, yep. I mean, this costs thousands of dollars uh, in labor and as well as materials. And um, so yes. there's that and aspect of climate change, but also the temperature itself that's rising. Two years right, ago, exactly. we hit very hard with um, increased temperatures, which affected not so much the life cycle of, well, it did in the end, the life cycle of the honeybee directly, but one of their predators, um, the varroa mite. And it allowed the yep. mite to reproduce um, two and three times as many uh, as many uh, mites as it would in a normal 
um, year um, with temperatures being, you know, a little more relatively uh, less less warm or less hot. I think this is a so similar we had, situation. We had, to, uh, we, we had to spend a rather huge amount of money on miticide for two extra treatments, and that did oh. the trick. However, you know, at an expense that, you know, you, you sort of have to just eat. And people don't understand. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, how, how are your bees? It's like, well, you tell me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, it's true know. also for, for the tick population, you know, that the warming yeah, temperatures sure. have, we haven't had a lot of kill off in, the, in some winters, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, in December and January, you'll get a tick on you, you know, when you're outside. Well, that, that's fierce. also going higher in the, I guess, um, latitude. I mean, in Vermont and Maine, I mean, different yep. livestock like the the wild moose um, are having huge problems um, with um, uh, diseases, uh, tick-borne diseases that they're yep. getting up there, and it's affecting the population quite severely. Well, I just want to interject here that our our technical difficulties have overcome us today because we have a very limited phone telos interface oh would you like would you like me to sign off no no it's it's because we're we're really literally down to uh uh one and a half minutes of the show oh right so so, um yeah so we're gonna have to forego dave today and we'll feature him next time at length uh but um so that's dave chapman of thetford farm in uh, vermont uh, with the Real Organic Project. He's the co-director of that. And um, so much important information. I want to mention his website is Real Organic. Uh, let me just see here. Realorganic.org, I believe is what it is. Real, realorganicproject.org. It's a fabulous website. It has uh, at least three little uh, podcasts on there with video. Beautiful, beautifully done. And uh, it it's so inspiring to watch them. I watched them again last night. Go to that website and uh, get get inspired and s- understand that there's a movement afoot in this country that uh, could, if enough adherents sign on and get inspired to participate, could begin to uh, to create a a whole new track of organic. Uh, growing and consuming that will, uh, to some extent, challenge the um, uh, the uh, c- confined feeding uh, uh, yeah. operations that are really devastating so much of our organic market these days. <laughs> so that so would be Dave Chapman. That's the real or- realorganicproject.org is that the website yeah and i'm going to have to i'm going to have to go to music now and we're going to sign off okay uh, bye everybody goodbye thank you, all nice thanks thanks for being with us yeah. vincent and, and thank you guys This has been the Organic Farm Stand. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks with a tribute to Guy Beer. This is the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis.
A YouGov poll recently commissioned by Vice News, The Guardian, and others reveals that the U.S. remains sharply divided over the causes of the deepening environmental emergency following the fossil fuel industry's long campaign to downplay and deny climate change. That division falls largely along political lines, with Democrats and Republicans at odds over the source of climate disinformation. The poll surveyed 1,000 American adults and found that 70% said global Global warming was happening. More than 60% said oil and gas companies were completely or mostly responsible. But while 89% of Democrats overwhelmingly accept the scientific basis of the climate emergency, opinion is split among Republicans. Just 42% of Republicans agreed that global warming is a reality, while 36% denied it. The remainder said they didn't know. The U.N. Secretary General has warned that countries are utterly failing to keep the goals of the Paris Climate Accord within reach. The latest downbeat assessment just days ahead of the opening of the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland. Despite a flurry of new climate pledges recently, including from fossil fuel exporters Saudi Arabia and Australia, Antonio Guterres said in a speech that the world was still on track for climate catastrophe. If the world's major emitters, such as the U.S. and China, succeed in achieving their net-zero greenhouse gas emissions targets by mid-century, then the warming would be brought down to about 2.2 degrees Celsius. The canal in Pinal County, Arizona, is a tiny piece of Central Arizona's project, a vast 336-mile network of pumps, tunnels, and pipelines that transports close to 500 billion gallons of water each year from the Colorado River. But in the southwest arid landscape, it is no longer certain how much people can rely on the Colorado River. A 22-year mega drought and growing demands across the Colorado Basin have depleted the river, pushing Western reservoirs to historic lows and triggering the first ever federally declared water shortages. In 2022, Arizona will implement the largest cuts, losing 20% of its Colorado River water. This shortage falls hardest on farmers in its Central Valley, who are navigating a difficult decision between using less water on their farms, selling their land, or returning to pumping groundwater. For centuries, Lake Tuz in central Turkey has hosted huge colonies of flamingos that migrate and breed there when the weather is warm, feeding on algae in the lake's shallower waters. This year, the 643-square-mile lake, Turkey's second-largest lake and home to several bird species, has entirely receded and thousands of birds have perished. Experts say Lake Tuz, known as Salt Lake in Turkish, is a victim of climate change-induced drought, which has hit the region hard and also decades of harmful agricultural policies that exhausted the underground water supply. The bomb cyclone that unleashed an atmospheric river across Northern California has effectively put an end to the state's second largest wildfire in history. The California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection announced that the Dixie Fire is 100% contained. The charred ground where trees and brush once stood experienced landslides around the Dixie area. There were reports of flooding in the Bay Area as well. 
The fossil fuel divest invest movement released a new report recently that details how institutions representing an unprecedented total of $39.2 trillion worth of assets have now committed to some form of fossil fuel divestment, a figure that's higher than the annual GDP of the United States and China combined. Student activists also announced new legal developments in their long-running campaigns against universities. The COP26 movement, a coalition of several different grassroots organizations, philanthropies, and advocacy groups, also provided proof that Divest Invest is a winning strategy. This was the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. This is WPKN. 